podcast, a show where we talk about electronics manufacturing and everything related to getting a circuit board into the world. This is Chris Denny with Worthington. And this is Melissa Hogue with Circuit Hub. So we have uh, a couple of weeks gone by now since we've, well, actually quite a few weeks have gone by now since we last recorded because um, oh, yeah. the last couple episodes were all recorded in one day, but we broke them up. Yeah, and uh, a little bit rocky. That <laughs> might be a little bit. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah, a little bit rocky, <laughs> but uh, a lot's been going on. Uh, the pandemic is is raging here in the United States. Thankfully, uh, where we are, we're we're uh, in a relatively low risk state, Massachusetts, here in New England. But it's picking up again. They've been yeah. talking about potentially rolling back to the previous stage, so. Yeah, exactly. And and so we at Worthington, we've we've gone to um, bringing everybody back in and, you, you know, working regular eight hour days and, um, you know, but still taking precautions. We have tape on the floor to try to keep everybody um, from, you know, entering various areas where people sit that, you know, so basically we measured out where people are sitting six feet and then put tape on the ground to try to prevent people from walking through those areas if they can help it. Um, and, uh, you know, to try to keep everybody a safe distance from each other, but also, uh, you know, everybody, everybody in the factory is wearing a mask uh, without exception, everybody must wear a mask and there are still zero visitors allowed, absolutely no visitors allowed. So trying to stay safe, but you know, if Massachusetts rolls back to the previous, um, stage, then so will Worthington. We'll go back to our our twelve hour days, but we'll see. Hopefully not. Hopefully we are able to uh, uh, nip this pandemic in the bud and and uh, get on with life. Everyone, do your part and stay safe. Yeah, but you know we're staying real busy. As a matter of fact, interestingly, our our customer base is keeping us super busy. Sales team is killing it, mm-hmm. killing me. <laughs> We were just talking before the show how frustrated I am because we're just so busy and I I hate I like I love being busy but I hate not being able to get everything done and mm-hmm. you know knowing that you have like work looming over that you know and people are relying on you and it's it's uh ugh, it's rough. Yeah. We're still expediting. We actually built a uh some boards today, some more it seems like every week we're building stuff for um COVID related projects, ventilators or you know, some kind of um, medical was device that, or something. Was it another ventilator project or? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I, I didn't, I didn't get a chance <laughs> as, as busy as we are. I didn't get a chance to take a close look at to what exactly it was, but it was definitely a ventilator. It even had like pictures of lungs on it. And, and like the logo was like a set of lungs with a little, um, 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 like a, what do you call that? That heartbeat graph, mm-hmm. you know, you always see it on the ER and, Grey's Anatomy and all that kind of stuff. What is that called? Oh boy, that's a great question. That's, <laughs> there's going to be uh, there's going to be somebody who's like a nurse in the medical field. Yeah. There's going to be a nurse or a doctor listening to this, going, okay, "Don't you idiots know what this thing is called?" <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's been great. We we've, we've been uh, been just just working hard trying to keep up with everything and introducing um, uh, a new machine to. Uh, help us improve quality with our new 3D AOI, and and uh, that's just been absorbing a ton of my time, a ton of my time. Um, been thrown into that, but hopefully I'll be able to hand it off in the next few weeks or uh, maybe a month or so. But really cool yeah. new process. Excited about that. We should have we should have a show about that at some point about AOI. About the new machine. About AOI or in general, AOI. But, yeah. but yeah, especially, you know, what this new machine is and what makes it different. And yeah. we keep teasing it every week because it's the kind of interesting <laughs> thing going on. But Well, I think once you kind of just completely wrap your head around it and completely understand it, that would be the best time. Probably. Probably. <laughs> yeah. I think that makes sense. Quit yeah. banging my head against the wall every time I run into a new application I haven't seen before and have to call the guys and say, how do I do this now? That's what I've just been doing like crazy. Just tons of emails and phone calls going, all right, explain to me how to do this. Explain to me how to do that. And they always do. There's always an answer for it. And then we get around it and we move on. But 
there's just so much, so, so much. Mm-hmm. And especially the kind of business that we're in, you know, because Circuit Hub, you know, accepts orders from anybody. So you'll get, you know, uh, a, in, in a week, you won't build uh, two boards by the same designer. So you're constantly working on boards that were designed for all kinds of designers. And that, that complicates the process and um, makes AOI even more difficult. But no, but we're not going to talk about AOI today. No. <laughs> um, we I know uh, we wanted to we wanted to get the guys on the show that we worked with on the open source ventilator, but due to some scheduling conflicts, we're gonna we're gonna call an audible this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the not the um, uh, the the books on tape company. <laughs> audible, as in the quarterback uh, calling an audible. That'll be great for international listeners. They'll be like, quarterback, audible? What is he talking about? <laughs> the Aussies will get it. They got football down there. But no, so we want to talk about this week, uh, the pick and place process, because this is something that is, I don't know, fascinating to a lot of people and uh, kind of the, the heartbeat of any electronics manufacturing operation is the pick and place process. So heartbeat um, of our show name, even as a matter of fact, (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like such an idiot for not even realizing (laughs) that. (laughs) Oh, it's been a long four weeks. It's been a long four weeks. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've reached out to us and we, you haven't heard back, uh, that's why. Because we've just been going crazy a little bit over here. And yeah. if you've if you have reached out to us and you have heard from me, consider yourself lucky. <laughs> <laughs> There's a long list of people who haven't. Uh, I'm doing my best. Doing my best. Yeah. Just um, growing pains. But growing anyways. pains. The gr- it's great. Honestly, it is great. It's absolutely great, and uh, uh, it's it's super exciting. I, I, mm-hmm. It's the it's the best kind of stress. It was it was we like to talk about because the the opposite is so much worse and and where we were yeah where we were in march and april um worried about the future we're not worried about that anymore now we're worried about how we can keep up with the future so which is which is a great problem to have so no complaints no 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 serious complaints there are you ready to talk pick and place yeah are you ready i'm ready i'm ready to talk pick and place i think you're always ready to talk pick and place yeah, that's, that's true. It's, it's a subject near and dear to my heart. All right. So a few episodes back, we kind of gave an overview of the entire assembly process. Um, so we just wanted to, well, and then last week we talked about um, the parts and parts purchasing process. So moving along in that thread, we wanted to go into what comes next, which is the pig and place assembly process. Um, so Chris, after kidding, what are the steps that have to get done in order to get the boards ready to be assembled by the pick and place machine? Well, first of all, I have to know if you can hear my dog in the background who's crying for dinner. No, I can't. Okay. <laughs> but every single episode, I think you complain about your dog. <laughs> Poor guy. He's just, if he sees me, he's like immediately hungry. It's the classic Pavlovian response, you know, <laughs> literally, because Pavlov tested dogs. So there you mm-hmm. go. Um, after kidding, uh, yeah, so so all the parts are presented in a kit and that kit is presented to the manufacturing floor. And what does the manufacturing floor do uh, with that kit of parts? They have to get those loaded. Those parts have to be loaded onto feeders. And if you're not familiar with what a feeder is, uh, you know, we could probably include in the show notes. I think that'd be a good idea. Some links to like some examples of what feeders look like. Various manufacturers make all kinds of different sizes and shapes and whatever for, for how to load parts onto a pick and place machine, but they have to be loaded onto a feeder. You know, it's sort of, it's uh, sort of a, a in between a necessary in between step from taking apart. Uh, that's in uh, a tape or a tube or a tray and getting it to a pick and place machine. So if you can, if you've seen before a, a, a tape of components, perhaps uh, even a full reel of components, you'll notice that there's um, a carrier tape and a cover tape. Uh, the carrier tape is typically made of paper. If it's a non-ESD sensitive part, 
but it might be made of plastic uh, if it is an ESD sensitive part or if it's a tall part, it'll have to be made of plastic because paper is really only for um, kind of flat, thin parts, typical resistors and capacitors and stuff like that. But if you get like a tall capacitor or you get an SOT23 or an SO8 or some kind of ESD sensitive part, now you got to use embossed plastic. So, and then covering that tape, you have a piece of, um, I think it's some kind of mylar. I don't really know the exact material. We always call it mylar, um, but it might be some other kind of plastic, but basically it's just glued down on top of it to hold the parts in place on the tape. It's a really thin piece of plastic, right? Extremely thin. Yeah. You know, imagine like, like a Ziploc bag, the wall of a Ziploc bag, kind of thin, mm-hmm. very, very thin. And it's just glued, two lines are glued down the sides of the carrier tape to uh, hold that in place. Well, you can't pick parts uh, out of that carrier tape without that plastic being removed. Oh, can't? No. I mean, I'm... <laughs> Uh, there's some physicist out there figuring out a way to do it and uh it'll be cool when he figures it out but well, no today save us a lot of time yeah <laughs> save us a lot of time but today we have to load that onto a feeder and that job that feeder uh is being hired to remove that cover tape and move the carrier tape forward and that's it that's its sole purpose in life um there, there's other things that it will do uh but that's the primary goal of that feeder is to try to advance the tape forward so that the machine can pick another part as well as remove that that cover tape and uh you know there's a few different ways to do that so like when you're loading feeders you you typically are um you know you have to somehow make sure that the machine understands what part is on that feeder so when you plug that feeder into a machine, the machine needs to know, okay, what did you just load here? And so you actually, you have to marry the part to the feeder. Mm-hmm. And so the machines we use, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about machines in general, but um, I, I can talk about our machines specifically because we use them every day. But we, we use machines from a company called Micronic, which used to be called MyData, which was a way better name. Micronic mm-hmm. is a horrible, horrible name, but whatever. They decided to change their name. Um, so I, oh, awful. <laughs> I wish I was in that room. I like, I, I, I just been in the corner of the room when somebody decided on Micronic and just raised my hand and said, uh, really? H- have you thought about this? <laughs> anyway, so Micronic makes uh, the, all of their feeders in the past uh, close to 20 years, I think. Uh, have been uh, electronic feeders, smart feeders. They're, they're, they have a chip in them that has, uh, when that chip gets connected to a pick and place machine, it identifies itself with a serial number. And offline, you know, nowhere near the machine, you can uh, scan a barcode that represents that serial number into mm-hmm. their software. And then the software says, okay, tell me what part number you're loading. And you scan the barcode on your reel or on your bag. And uh, you marry those two two things together. So now the feeder knows exactly what part you've loaded onto it. And you do this over and over and over and over because some jobs you may have 200 unique part numbers. Those are That's very, very high. That's very, very, very high, 200 unique part numbers. But it's not uncommon. Yeah. Um, you know, typically the most common is somewhere between like 20 and 100 unique part numbers get loaded onto a machine. Um, and now those feeders, so we're just talking about tape and reeled components right now. Those feeders have to get plugged into a uh, magazine. So for my data machines, my chronic machines, the magazines, um, they're, you know, um, how, how would you picture them? I'm trying to think of, uh, well, you know what? We'll include them in the show notes. We'll have some pictures in the show notes of what these things look like. And, and obviously we have some nice videos that will go along with this. So you can kind of follow along as you listen, or you can take a look back later and then you can understand how to translate uh, all this gibberish into a meaningful yeah. <laughs> picture. Um, but those magazines, it's interesting. My, my, my data does it very differently because the feeders are actually um, a very simple mechanism. They, they literally just fold over the cover tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. It's the magazine that actually advances the tape and moves the tape forward, uh, which is quite different because most every other vendor, they will 
the feeder will do both the advancing and the removing of the cover tape. And when I say remove, most all of them completely remove. So they don't just fold over the tape. They actually completely remove the tape and, and wind it up either on a spool or they gather it into like a hopper or um, they'll, uh, you know, cut it off in sh short sections as it's being removed. So you kind of create this graffiti of, of, of cover tape. And they'll also do that for the carrier tape. Do you think that leads to more fallout? Or? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, it's, uh, it's, it's actually somewhat more reliable. So by, by peeling the cover tape over, um, rather than completely removing the cover tape, you risk potentially not peeling it over far enough. Mm. And so okay. then when the machine goes to pick a part, it'll actually catch the edge of that part. And, and then it ends up rejecting it. Exactly. Exactly. Or you could potentially peel it over too far and then completely remove the cover tape. But it's on a system that's designed not to completely remove the cover tape. So the cover tape ends up flapping around in the breeze and <laughs> making a big mess. <laughs> so um, it's much easier to load these feeders, right? You just kind of push the tape into them and then it peels it over as opposed to the others where you have to kind of get it into these jaws and then it starts mm -hmm. to, you know, advance it and remove the cover tape. And, um, you know, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both systems, but. Hey, Chris here from the future. So uh, I'm about to talk about confetti, but I use the word graffiti over and over again. I have no idea why I did that, but uh, I'm talking about confetti. Uh, you know, the stuff like the uh, New York Giants shoot off when they beat the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. Yeah, that kind of stuff. That's what I meant to say. All right, back to uh, Chris from the past. The interesting thing about those feeders that, that cut off the um, spent cover tape and spent carrier tape is they actually end up being a bit more um, like environmentally friendly, not significantly, but uh, mm -hmm. because they kind of cut it up into, you know, small little two, three inch sections of, you know, and then you end up with this kind of graffiti of parts. It's sort of like, you know, you can fill a, uh, a bucket with sand little tiny granules of sand much more easily than you can fill a bucket with rocks. If you fill a bucket with rocks, then you're going to have a lot of air in there. But if you fill a bucket with sand, it's going to be completely filled. There's going to be no air in it, relatively speaking. Oh, so you mean when you go to like throw it in a trash bag? Right. So you when, you, when you use less trash bags. Exactly. And you're okay. taking up less space and there's less air. And, and so there's, there's some small environmental um, improvement there. And when you're talking about companies that are making iPhones, uh, mm -hmm. that small environmental improvement probably becomes a significant <laughs> environmental improvement, right? Um, because uh, our pick and place machines don't don't cut up that cover tape. And so you just have this huge, long spaghetti thing at the behind the machine when you're done running. And, uh, you know, it, you bundle that up as best you can, you pack it down as best you can, but it's still not going to uh, save as much room as, as the graffiti sort of being cut up. Boy, that was quite a digression, but I <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never really thought about that before. I mean, I, I've obviously like seen all of the leftovers and it definitely looks like it takes up just a ton of space, but yeah, yeah I've never thought manufacturing about manufacturing is, it's interesting. Manufacturing, if you look at Apple does an excellent, um, um, you know, environmental report every year, or every quarter, I'm not sure how often they put it out. Um, but if you look at their, their, you know, how they define their carbon footprint, their, their design facilities and sales facilities and, you know, stores and everything are, are like a tiny, relatively small percentage of their carbon footprint. The, the vast majority of their carbon footprint, the way that they define it comes from their supply chain and their manufacturing and their shipping and those sorts of things. Uh, because manufacturing is, you know, let's face it, it's, it's not, not so great for the earth in general. <laughs> So, you know, these small steps uh, add up, though, uh, to, to make a significant difference. But um, so it's, it's good to see those sorts of things. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's easier to handle, too. It's easier to handle a bucket of graffiti than it is a big spaghetti of, of tape. Um, OK, enough of the digression <laughs> <laughs> on the environmental impact of uh, graffiti right. tape. So uh, we placed the feet. Well, we've loaded the feeders. We placed the feeders into the magazines. Yeah. And then the magazines 
go into, go in, the, machine. Go into the machine. Yeah. Now there's, but there's, there's two other types of feeders. Uh, okay. you, so we've just talked about your tape and reel feeders. There's also tube feeders and, uh, cause a lot of parts come in tubes. And so the way that those get handled is a little bit differently. They, they actually will go onto a lot of machines. They'll go onto kind of like a vibratory table. And so mm-hmm. as the machine needs another part, it'll vibrate and use gravity to continue to feed these parts out of a tube. Um, or uh, the MyData machines kind of use more of a shuffling action. So they, they move forward slowly and then they snap back very quickly. And that just causes kind of like a sliding motion. Mm-hmm. So like to illustrate this, if you were to take, a, you know, I don't know, a, a pen onto a piece of paper on your table, and then you, you, you slide your piece of paper forward and then quickly snap it back, your pen will end up more forward on the paper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that motion is what the My Data machines use to uh, advance their tubes. It's kind of neat. It works really well. Like it's, it's a really innovative way of uh, advancing the parts. So, uh, you know. But tubes are terrible. They're, they're yeah, <laughs> if I anything you guys slows down, last week how you guys hated them. Yeah, oh, they're they're just terrible. If anything slows down a manufacturing a pick and place process, it's tubes. They're just they're just miserable. What about um, them? Slows everything down again? Well, so a tape you can load a thousand parts onto a tape. Mm-hmm. Um, a tube you can maybe fit what depends on how big the part is. Yeah. But some parts maybe you can only fit twenty parts, and other other tubes you can maybe fit fifty parts but you're so you're constantly changing them over and reloading them and and there's some vendors that have like hoppers and they'll just like as the tubes empty it'll spit out one tube and it'll automatically load the next one which is kind of cool um but in general they just they just slow things down and they have like the way that you position them on a my data machine you have to have either a custom positioner designed for that size part or you have like an adjustable positioner and then you have to cut the top of the tube open and if you don't cut it just right it can catch the edge and and then you know you've got all this fallout again and they're just they're very frustrating to deal with so as much as possible we try to buy parts and tape uh, but there's just some parts that don't come in tape uh, and then you also have trays trays are the other way that uh, parts get loaded into a pick and place machine and a lot of machines have dedicated um, tray feeders and so it's kind of like a tower that is stuck on to the end of a machine or you know where you know uh sometimes uh, regular tape feeders can be loaded they'll they'll pull off that section and they'll plug in this this machine designed to feed trays and uh, it's kind of like what we have so we have something that takes up space where we could normally put tape but it allows us to feed trays uh into the machine and trays are fine trays work well um they're a little bit slower because, uh, you know, you, again, how many parts can you fit in a tray versus how many parts can you fit in, in tape and reel? So you have to change them over more often. But th- so those are the kind of three methods. You have your tape and reeled parts, your tube parts, and your tray parts. And there can also be loose parts and there's ways of handling those. And, and you know, honestly, a lot of times you go back to the old good old fashioned hand placement. There's, there's plenty of parts that you have to hand place because you know, maybe you're only building five boards, so you don't bother loading that on a machine if it's loose, you know, um, versus trying to find a tray or printing a tray to uh, pick parts from it. But yeah, it's it's an enormous task to set up a pick and place machine. Uh, mm-hmm. All of that feeder loading and magazine loading and the tubes, the trays, that can take... Um, many, many hours, depending on the job. Like we talked about earlier, the 200 um, unique part number job that may take, you know, it could literally take eight man hours to load that kind of a job. Um, And so you're tying up how much time, uh, you know, a person's time, you're tying up uh, uh, resources, feeders, magazines, you know, these things cost big money. A typical feeder can be four or 500 bucks each. and that's cheap. Uh, you know, my data feeders tend to be a little bit cheaper uh, versus some vendors, you know, their their feeders might be $1,000, $2,000. I've seen some that are even $3,000 for for an eight millimeter feeder. And uh, so, you, so now you have to have an inventory of all of these tools. And so it's just, 
it's a super expensive operation. The setup of a pick and place machine is a super expensive operation. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times, uh, you know, that is going to have a significant impact on the price of somebody's uh, build. And I think everything you just explained uh, also just goes into why we have to charge for separate setups and doing first articles, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yep, precisely. So like we've had some circumstances where customers, um, you know, they'll they'll want us to build a thousand pieces, uh, but they want to make sure that the first 10 come out okay. And granted, that's that's great. Totally, you should do yeah. That. It's a yeah. It's a total. Like we we want you to do that. As a matter of fact, sometimes we'll look at certain orders and we'll we'll reach out to the customer and say, hey, you know, uh, w- you we're going to insist yeah. that we we do a sample here before we build all of these because um, we want to mitigate our own risk. Uh, but that's that does cost money. That means we have to do two setups. Uh, but you know, what goes up must come down. So if we're setting up all these things, we've also got to tear down all these things. We've got to unload all the feeders and magazines and everything. And um, so that, that has a cost associated with it too. So, you know, that's a, that's a huge part of the pick and place process is the setup of the machine. And, uh, you know, I could, I could go into all kinds of details on it, but I think we've, <laughs> I think yeah. we've said enough about it. <laughs> if anybody does have questions about any of this stuff, like by all means, reach out. And if you don't hear from me, uh, it's because I'm busy. It's not because I'm ignoring you, uh, but I'll, I'll respond. Like it's pretty rare that I don't respond to somebody who reaches out to me. It may take me a little while, but I'll, <laughs> I'll eventually get to it. Okay. Yeah. So now all the parts are physically on the machine. What do you have to do next? So um, you need to make sure that those parts, first of all, are all there. I know that sounds strange, but let's say that, you know, you're expecting the uh, 200 unique part numbers. Uh, the machine is going to tell you if it only has 199, it's going to mm-hmm. say, okay, where's part number ABC. And uh, if you didn't load it properly, you didn't scan everything properly. You got to figure out where that part is. So that's the first step just to make sure. And we largely do all that offline. We have tools for being able to do that before we actually load it on the machine. But um the other thing is we need to verify that all those parts are oriented properly. In other words, when I tell the machine that it's going to pick up your SO8 at zero degrees, is that SO8 actually loaded in the tape in zero degrees or is it load, loaded in the tape, you know, 270 degrees? And we have to go through and verify all those rotations are proper because mm-hmm. Um, if you have a polarized component, like most SO8s are, and you pick that part up, uh, you know, and, and it's loaded at 270 and you said that it's lo- loaded at 90. Well, guess what? It's going to place all those parts backwards. <laughs> you got a lot of rework on your hands there. Uh, yeah. so you got to verify all your orientations. The other thing you have to do is, is called like a trimming process. Basically you have to, um, advance all those parts to a point where um, the machine can accurately pick them up or you, or you teach the machine, this is the center of that pocket. So on my data machines, because they're a split axis machine, meaning um, the board moves in the Y axis and the pick and place head moves in the X axis and the feeders have very little uh, Y movement. They have unlimited X movement because the pick and place head can, can pick the parts up at any, any, you know, um, point along the X axis, the Y axis, it has very small movements, basically as much as that feeder can move it forward, the magazine can move it forward or backward. Um, so you have to be very precise and you have to get all those feeders to line up very precisely with that X axis because that, you know, it's not going to be able to move in the Y at all versus other vendors. They have, um, uh, most of, well, I think almost, There are some split axis machines still, but there's not many. Most every other vendor in the industry, uh, they mount the pick and place head on uh, uh, X and Y movement. So the board is stationary, the feeders are stationary, and the head can move, uh, you know, almost infinitely in the X and Y direction within the limits of its, you know, mechanical design. So even if you don't load that feeder quite 
perfectly or you know that that part isn't isn't being presented quite perfectly you can compensate it with the movement of the head uh this is getting super complicated <laughs> but you the end result is you need to make sure that the feeders are presenting the part uh in a way that the the head can reach it basically that's what you have to do you have to make sure that it's it, you know it's ready to be picked up and we call that a trimming process uh, so once you've trimmed the parts and you've verified your orientation, now you're more or less ready to run. Um, and you can start to load a board and, um, you know, run your, run your operation. So when that feeder advances the part forward, um, that pick and place head is going to come over and it's going to move a nozzle, uh, you know, picture something that, you know, is in the shape of, of a pen or a pencil, you know, long skinny rod is going to move down and it's going to have a nozzle on the end of it. That is the size of the component that it needs to pick or close to the size of the component that it needs to pick. So if you're picking a little, uh, 0201, you're going to have a very tiny tip on the end of that nozzle or on the end of that, um, vacuum tube. If you're picking a uh, SO8, you're going to have a pretty large uh, tip at the end of that tube. And all of those tubes are interchangeable. So when you're programming a pick and place machine, you're defining um, what size uh, uh, tip that you're going to use to pick that component. Hmm. And uh, so some machines. Go ahead. Defining it? Yeah, like, that's a great question. Yeah, great question. So uh, from my data, you are explicitly defining this specific tip. Those tips are interchangeable. So the tubes are a certain, you know, fixed size. And then the tips are being held in a uh, carrier, you know, something somewhere in the machine where the machine can come over and uh, drop off a tip and pick up a new tip. So, uh, you know, when it's picking up this part, it has to First of all, have the right size, uh, you know, the, the more common, I keep using the, the, the term tip, but it's more, the more common uh, term for this is called a nozzle. And uh, so the, uh, the nozzle comes over, comes down, and a small vacuum is applied to that tube to be able to suck the part out of the carrier tape, almost exclusively. There are some mechanical tools. There are some pick and place machines that have mechanical jaws that will actually pick up a part mechanically and hold it that way. But, you know, 99.99999, I don't know how many nines you want to go, percent of surface mount parts are picked up using vacuum with these, with these nozzles. Um, the times that they'll use a mechanical, uh, you know, gripper is if it's some kind of a weird connector or, and oftentimes when using mechanical gripper, it's almost like custom engineered for one part. So if you know you're going to be placing a million of these parts and you don't want to place them by hand, you may work with your vendor and say, Hey, do you guys have a mechanical gripper that we can use? If not, they might engineer one for you for a fee and, and then you can pick and place those parts with a mechanical gripper. But that's, that's pretty rare. So once it's been picked up with um, a nozzle, it's going to need to find out where that part is sitting on the nozzle because it might be, you know, perfectly centered, unlikely. Um, and it needs to know where it's sitting on the nozzle and then make an adjustment. The way that it does that is by far the most common way is some kind of machine vision, some kind of a digital camera with lighting, adjustable lighting, lighting at different angles, even, um, to try to identify features on that part that it can see and place accurately. Those features, you really, really, really want those features to be some kind of solderable feature. So what do I mean by that? Like you could have um, a component that has, uh, you know, like a marking on the bottom or a silk screen on the bottom of it. And maybe the machine vision can see that stuff, but you don't want to align the component to that silk screen or that marking because you're not soldering to silk screen. You're soldering to the, <laughs> to the copper leads that are coming off this part. And that's, and that's where you need to make sure you're placing accurately is to those copper leads. So, 
you're going to shine the light on it. Digital camera is going to take a picture of it. It's going to check um, how it's moving on that nozzle in the X and Y direction. And very importantly, in the theta, in the rotational direction. And then once it knows uh, where that part is sitting on the nozzle, it'll use a computer to calculate how much that nozzle needs to turn and how much that pick and place head needs to move in the X and the Y direction in order to place that part accurately. And this all happens really, really, really fast. I mean, insanely fast. It's just, uh, it's just like kind of mind blowing when you consider everything it's doing. Like you, you're watching it and it's like, oh, this is pretty cool. But when you're thinking about everything that it's doing each second, it's just pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. It really is. It's fun to kind of look at the, um, on some machines, like our machine, you can actually call up the log. Like you can call up the, um, um, oh, I'll call it the log. I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but basically show me, show me everything you're doing right now. And it's just, it's, it's just this impossible to keep up with stream of information. It's all happening so fast. Um, and it's really, really insane how many different things, because you not only is it controlling, you know, that digital camera and identifying that part and making all the calculations to rotate, but it also has to figure out, you know, like when to turn the, the, the vacuum on and off, you know, how, how high am I going to hold this part as I scan it over the camera? Because if your part is 10 millimeters tall, well, guess what? You know, that camera has a zoom lens on it and it's fixed. It ain't moving. So you've got to move your part up 10 millimeters in order for the um, camera to see it versus you've got another part that's only one millimeter tall. And, you know, so it's got to make all those calculations too. How, how, you know, how am I going to pick all these parts in such a way that I'll be able to scan everything over this camera so that they can see everything accurately. It's really, it's insane to watch. And there's, there, we'll, we'll put a bunch of uh, video links to videos in the show notes to see how this works, but it's, it's super, super cool. There's other centering mechanisms. Um, so, so I mentioned machine vision is by far the most common. Um, my data, older, my data machines, they actually have a mechanical centering system, which is pretty neat. Hmm. So mounted on one of their pick and place heads are these like two mechanical jaws and they're, you know, like an inch long, maybe by like a half inch tall. And what they do is they, they move at the exact same rate from the left and from the right, and they squeeze the part together. And when they squeeze the part together, uh, if there was any shift in uh, the center of that part, it's now pushed it over to the very mm-hmm. center of that nozzle. It's really quite neat. Huh. And and so it, it does that in zero degrees, then it does that in 90 degrees, and then in theory, it should be perfectly centered. Obviously, a mechanical system is not going to have quite the same accuracy as um, a, a machine vision system, but it does work pretty well. And if it's not a super um, fine pitch part, you know, you can, you can place a lot of stuff that way. As a matter of fact, I believe that's how my data started. I don't even think they had machine vision on their earliest machines. I think they only had um, the mechanical centering system. Their old machines were called um, TP machines. And to this day, their software is called TPSYS. And the TP stood for test in place. <laughs> because with those mechanical jaws, you can actually test the value of the component. You can actually like measure the resistance or the capacitance of the component before you place it. Mm. So that's something that we do. We, you know, for every feeder with a resistor or a capacitor, uh, we will actually pick the part, test it, and then place the first one that way so that we know it's the correct value. Because sometimes, say you've got, you know, if you're not careful and you're loading your machine, you may scan the wrong part number and load the wrong part. And so you were supposed to load a 10K and you loaded a 100K resistor. Well, this testing process will catch that and prevent you from placing 10,000 of the wrong value. Um, it's really, a, it's, it's a very valuable tool for us. And, and more often than not, we, we've caught things not from ourselves, but from our vendors sending us the wrong parts. Um, we've seen that a number of times now. So thank goodness for test in place. <laughs> So once you've tested the parts, once you've located the parts and you've placed the parts into the solder paste, which that's a whole, we definitely got to talk about solder, 
solder printing because something like 80 or 90% of the defects in a manufacturing operation come from the printing process. And you would think, yeah, you would think it's, oh, it's pick and place or it's reflow. Nope. 80 or 90% of all defects from any factory, you can look at any factory's data and it'll show that it came from the stencil printing process. That's where it all comes from. But uh, so you got to get that right. <laughs> and that'll be, that'll be an interesting thing to talk about. Maybe in a few weeks we can talk about the uh, stencil printing process and how to get paste on a board and all the different ways to get paste on a board. Uh, okay, so let's get back to pick and place anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, once it's placed all the parts on the board, it will, you know, uh, shuttle the parts out and prepare itself for the next board. And on our machine, because the, um, the board moves in the y-axis, we have to be careful with how quickly we move that board because those parts are now just sitting in solder paste. And if it's just a little 402, we can run that thing as fast as possible. You know, it's measured in meters per second. Um, but if it's a big heavy inductor or a real b- great big tall aluminum capacitor, well, now you've got a fair bit of weight. You've got a fair bit of inertia. And if that inertia, if the force of that inertia overcomes the force of the, of the, the stickiness of the solder paste, well, that part's going to go flying. Slide around, <laughs> slide right yeah, off. Exactly. So uh, we, you know, we also have to teach parts to, you know, slow down the machine as they're placed. So it'll try to place all of your smaller parts first until it places the uh, taller parts and the heavier parts later on. Um, that mm-hmm. way there it can run, you know, as quickly as possible until the very end, it'll place kind of the heavier components and then kick it out of the machine. Now, some machines, the board doesn't move. The board only sits on a conveyor. And then while it's being populated, <clears throat> it's, um, it's just going to, uh, you know, it's just going to sit there. So that machine can run as fast as it possibly can without slowing down the y-axis, which is pretty nice. And, um, and then you'll also, a lot of times you'll have some machines that are designed just for your small parts, just for your really fast placement. And then you, you know, right in line with that machine, you'll have another machine designed just for your big, heavy parts and your weird shape parts and your expensive parts and stuff like that. So most of what we do, we, we can build everything in one machine. We do tie multiple machines together for speed, but that's kind of the beauty of the my data machine is that you can with one machine you can build almost anything um, but there are limitations to to most machines and uh, you know no no one machine can can handle absolutely everything um, but the my data machines can handle an enormous uh, an enormous variety of machines and uh, so so for that it's it's uh, they're pretty handy. Okay. So is there anything customers can do or you would like them not to do in order to make the pick and place process run smoother? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's quite a bit. Um, part, most of it comes down to part selection. Um, you know, choosing parts that are not going to be difficult to manufacture. So, um, you know, a lot of times we see manufacturers of parts, you know, say they're making some kind of voltage regulator and you need a voltage regulator on your board. Well, if you have a really, really tiny board and you're making some kind of wearable, well, you're going to choose some really tiny parts, but there are consequences to choosing really tiny parts. Uh, machines have to run slower. Uh, you know, they have to, and the reason they have to run slower is because they have to, you know, handle these a bit more accurately. The printing process becomes more complicated on and on and on. But when choosing parts, if you can, choose parts um, that are as large as possible and, and, you know, within reason, you don't have to have a 1206 resistor for everything, but yeah. you know, so what's the smallest part that generally you would prefer people use unless they have to. Yeah. Like uh, so, so in, in Imperial units, we call it the 0402 and I think in metric it's called um, 0603, mm-hmm. which is very confusing because Imperial also has an 0603 and, uh, standards. So, uh, but yeah, you know, the American standard, the U S standard, whatever you want to call it, the Imperial measurement of 0402, 
uh, for your discrete resistors and capacitors and stuff like that. It's totally fine. We, I mean, we just, we place millions of those a year. No, no sweat. Uh, O201s are fine too, but they're, they're, they're getting more difficult. They're now, now you've got a lot more you got to consider, not just about the pick and place process. Um, but you also got to consider about the printing process, the reflow process, the potential rework process. Um, uh, you know, if, if you're doing a fly in probe operation, the testing process, there's, there's all kinds of things that become way more complicated. AOI process becomes more complicated with 0201. So 0402 is kind of the, the, the safety floor, if you will. And, and most tiny boards, um, can fit a ton of 0402s on them still. Uh, but if you have the room for it, go 0603. Uh, there's just everything about 0603 is just a little bit better than 0402. Um, you can, vendors can fit markings on 0603. So you can actually verify the values of resistors without testing them. Uh, Cause you can read the marking with an AOI. You can't have any markings on an 0402. Um, uh, but they're also just easier to handle. You, you know, your, your feeders don't have to be as accurate. Your placement doesn't have to be as accurate. You can run things faster uh, all that kind of stuff is just a little bit easier with 0603. So if you can, if you have the room for it, go 0603. If you need to save room, go for 02. And, uh, those are kind of the, the safe zones for all your discrete components. But like, there's also, you know, I've seen where customers will choose a, um, you know, like a eight pin micro BGA for a part when the vendor had a perfectly fine, you know, uh, eight pin SO8 that, and you had plenty of room on your board to fit it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, don't choose the tiniest part just because it's available. Uh, you know, consider, consider the whole thing. And, and if you're, if the part that you need comes in a larger size, try to use a larger size. And, and it's just like, um, I use the analogy. I was talking to John from circuit hub the other day, it's, it's imagine your, your Robin hood, you know, and I, I think of the old uh, Disney cartoon, Robin hood, and you see him shooting his arrow and he hits the bullseye every time. Cause he's Robin hood. Right? But, um, not everybody can do that. If you're an archer and you're trying to hit that bullseye, well, the larger your target, the much, you know, you, you don't have to be quite as careful and you, you feel a little bit more comfortable and you can hit that target every time. Uh, but the smaller and smaller your target gets, the more you've got to watch your breathing, you know, you got to study your hand, you, you know, you got to have the right equipment, you got to have, you know, you got to uh, be careful of the wind and all these sorts of things. Uh, it You can still hit your target, but you've got a lot more to consider in order to hit that target. And it's the same way with the size of components. Um, larger components, the target's much wider. You're going to hit it every time. It's much easier. Smaller components, they're much more narrow. You got to be much more careful, you know, so that's going to reflect in, um, yields, uh, lead times, pricing in the long run, um, all kinds of stuff. So choosing, just don't choose the smallest parts if you can, if you can avoid it. Yeah. That's clever. I like that analogy. Yeah. I don't know. I came up with that one day (laughs) and I was like, this works so good. I'm going to keep using it. The other one that a lot of people use is like a window and, and, you know, a wider window you can fit through. I don't know. The analogy doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me. I no, prefer I, think I the, like the target better. Yeah. I prefer archery more. Um, <laughs> All right. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, so uh, try not to fit your parts too close to each other. Um, so if you think about it, if you have, you know, you have these vacuum tubes and they're a certain size and if you put all your parts right next to each other, say you have a, a tall uh, aluminum capacitor next to a small 0402 uh, resistor, well, you have to be careful about your 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 placement um, process to make sure that you place that capacitor f- or that that small 0402 resistor before that tall capacitor, because if you place that tall capacitor first and then you try to place that tiny resistor where the tube of the pick and place head might actually collide with that aluminum capacitor when it goes to place it. Um, So trying to give everything enough room to kind of breathe on that board, spacing things out a little bit. Um, You know, if you have an expensive BGA uh, and you shove uh, your 0.1 mics right up next to that BGA, which you want to do, I mean, that's, you know, you got to have those, um, you know, those voltage regulating capacitors around, around these expensive processors. 
Um, but if you put them right next to each other and the placement of that 0402 is just a little bit off and then you try to place that BGA, well, you know, you may place it right on top of that 0402. And uh, so, yeah, give, give, give everything a little bit of a breathing room, I should say. That's, uh, yeah. And everybody always wants a rule of thumb there. Well, it's a rule of thumb. I, I, and I've never been able to give a good one. I always just say one millimeter, like <laughs> yeah, from the from edge of one component to the edge of another component. And yeah. that may be unrealistic for very small boards, but it's, if you can do it, great. Do I it. I guess it one depends millimeter. on the parts too. So. Yeah, it depends on the parts. Yeah, it depends on the parts too. Um, okay. yeah. Believe it or not, we do have a bit of a preference for uh, like QFN, DFN style components, BGAs over leaded components. Yeah, you um, mentioned that and I found that really intriguing because <laughs> that seems very counterintuitive, at least to you, me. You would think, yeah, you would think. Uh, but leads can become damaged um, okay. and they can get bent and they can get lifted and they, you know, they're fragile. QFNs don't have leads. They're, they're molded right into the part. And so you can't really damage that component. And so your yields tend to be better with those types of components. Um, the, the, the disadvantages of QFNs and BGAs and things like that is if you make a mistake, they're more expensive really. and more difficult to rework. Yeah. Um, but we do so much of them and we do them all the time. And we so rarely have defects anymore with those kinds of components that it's, it's become, you know, almost, almost easier for us to handle those kinds of components than um, deleted components. This is going to be a very controversial thing to say. And I'm sure if anybody at Worthington is listening to this, they're probably <laughs> thinking, are you crazy? <laughs> Definitely leaded components are so much better. And, and especially the inspectors, because they like to see those nice big solder joints and they know that if there's a problem, they can fix it real easy. Uh, but if you look at the data, you'll, you'll see that uh, the yields on, on the QFN and BGA type components is much higher than the yields on the um, unleaded components. It's just that when there's a problem, it's so much more difficult to fix than it yeah. is to fix a leaded component. So, I mean, like when I, I, I did a bunch of design work and I, as much as possible, I used leaded components. And the reason I did that is because I knew that if there was any issues, it'd be much easier for us to rework. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's not a hard and fast rule. Um, the truth is I probably should have chose a leadless components. Um, but, um, you know, you live and learn, I guess. So it's easier to, it's easier to rework them, but, um, the BJs have less issues in the first place so that exactly. you actually yeah. have to rework them. Exactly. And, and now that we have better control over our printing process, which that's really at the end of the day, QFN and BGA in order to get high yield, it all comes down to the printing process. And um, now that we have really tight control over our printing process with solder paste inspection machine, um, it's it's become you know the yield is there, and and we we rarely have defects with it now, unless we designed our stencil wrong, which stinks and happens, but we try to avoid that. <laughs> we actually we had to do some rework for a customer recently because we designed the stencil wrong, and that was that was pretty painful. Oh, very <sighs> painful. It was like a hundred boards. I, oh, I was kicking myself for that one. But these things happen. Um, right. Another thing to consider is uh, uh, the height of components. So like if you need a, a ton of capacitance and you're going to use a great big aluminum electrolytic capacitor, maybe consider using multiple smaller ones and putting them in parallel or is it series? Maybe parallel. I don't know. You decide. I'm not. I'm not an engineer. I'm a manufacturer. Um, but you know, if you need a ton of capacitance and you have a really tall capacitor, not every pick every pick and place machine can handle really tall capacitors. I think ours is limited to like 15 millimeters, and we have ways of stretching it to like 16 millimeters. Mm. Um, and there's other machines that can do like 25 millimeters. So what's the limiting factor on the pick and place machine that prevents it from handling really tall caps? So the, uh, oftentimes it's the head and how high the head can move if it can get out of the way, but it, it can also be like the actual like body and sheet metal of the machine. Like it's got to pass, it's got to pass through the machine and those openings are only just so large. Mm -hmm. Um, so on a micronic pick and place machine, you have a, um, 
you have these like safety guards and uh, like there's a front safety glass and that safety glass I want to say is like 16 or maybe 17 millimeters tall. So even if you could place it, even if the head was tall enough to get out of the way and place that part, um, uh, it might hit the safety glass and cause a big mess. So yeah, it's, it's the physical limitation of the pick and place machine. Um, the other thing I will encourage every customer to avoid if at all possible is avoid using a micro USB port in your design. <laughs> I, I know this sounds insane. We, we, we almost, I feel like almost every board we build has a micro USB port, but they are, there's, they're, the, they're horribly designed. Like, I don't, again, I wish I was in the room. I wish I was in the room. They're not designed for manufacturing. USB-C is where it's at. Those things are awesome. And whoever, you know, the, the consortium that designed USB-C, they nailed the manufacturability of these things. They're not, I wouldn't say that they, they were easy for us at first. We had, a, we had a lot of learning to do as we started to see USB-C. But now that we've seen the various USB-C designs, we, we have really high yield on those things and have had really good results with them. Micro USB has these weird, it has this like flange which is designed to make it a little bit easier to plug your cable into. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's kind of like a funnel shaped opening a little bit. And that flange dips below the surface of the PCB. So when you put it at the edge of the PCB, because we build everything in a panel, that flange gets in the way. And we can't, uh, you know, we, we have to accommodate that in the panel. But that's a, that's a whole other discussion. The thing that's annoying about the pick and place process for these parts is they almost never have a nice clean pick surface. Like you, you can't pull a vacuum on these things because they have all these holes in the top of them. And if you can pull a vacuum on them, then uh, it's really, it can be difficult to see all of the features on them to, uh, for the machine vision system to see all the features on them to play, to, you know, align them accurately. Um, they're just a pain. There's so many things that are a pain. So two controversial topics. Choose QFN over leaded devices and choose USB-C over micro USB. And, um, you know, I bring it on haters. <laughs> <laughs> so how much like uh, USB-C are you guys starting to actually see? Quite a bit. Like seriously, a lot. Um, almost every day uh, we'll see something with USB-C on it. Huh. Maybe not every day, but it's quite a bit. We're start- starting to see it. It's way more expensive than, than regular usb uh, the parts are more expensive. The, the chips are more expensive. Um, so you don't get me wrong. It's harder to design. Yeah, absolutely. It's harder to design. You got to have special yeah. software because you got to have controlled impedance. On, uh, is it controlled impedance you need, or you need you need to make sure your traces are the same length? There, there's some there's some special design consideration that makes it more difficult. So there's so many there's so many reasons not to use USB C. I get it. I get it. I'm just I'm going off on my pet peeve of how annoying micro USBs are, and like. I, the amount of rework we've had to do to micro USB over years, it's like, oh my goodness. Cause then they like float during reflow and they get all tur- they like turn and twist and mm-hmm. uh, they're just such a pain. They're such a pain. It's not just the pick and place process. It's, it's like everything about them, but they're also a pain for the pick and place process. You'd be surprised how many times we pick these parts and the machine will place them, but then they come out of the machine and they're crooked. It's like, well, why are they crooked? And, you know, I could give a thousand different reasons why they're crooked. I think we always like to end on like a little pet peeve. Maybe we should make that a trend of the show. Pet peeve of the week? Yeah, pet peeve of the week. Oh, this is great. I like this. <laughs> oh, man. I, I have endless pet peeves. Yeah. Oxford commas, for example. Well, that lack... doesn't really have to do anything about electronics. So. <laughs> the lack of the use of Oxford commas. <laughs> Bring it on, haters. <laughs> Um, yeah, pet peeve of the week, micro USB ports, definitely pet peeve of the week. I like it. All right. Well, I think we covered quite a lot. Is there anything else that you think that people should know about just the whole pick and place process or the machines or anything at all? It's definitely a, it's a super cool process. The history of how it developed with IBM and how these through-hole components became surface mount components by cutting the leads off and flattening them by hand originally. Um, you know, 
it's it's so cool. The history of how all this came about is really quite neat, but uh I didn't do enough research to go into it today. <laughs> that would be a, that might be like once we kind of get through everything else and we're looking for other topics, the history of yeah. how that developed might be kind of neat to hear. I'm sure there's something we missed. I'm sure there's somebody else's pet peeve we didn't touch on and hopefully people find this entertaining, but if they have questions like reach out, I I, I would love to do like a follow-up section of the show as we get more listeners and, and people have questions mm. and, and say, hey, you know, I said this thing last week. Well, it turns out it wasn't really accurate. Uh, I'm sure I've made mistakes about that. Um, or, you know, somebody had a question, wanted some clarification. And uh, yeah, I'd love to be able to handle that kind of stuff. Perfect. Cool. All right. Well, so I think next episode we're hoping to speak to some of the guys from the open source ventilator project like we mentioned at the beginning of the show so if everyone's schedules works out that's what we'll be speaking about next which i'm really excited about i am so excited about that truly truly excited those are great guys fun to talk to really insightful really freaking smart like i'm i feel like i definitely feel like the dummy in the room when i'm talking to those guys (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, you got me there. No, come on. (laughs) All right, so I think that's it. So thanks for listening to the Pick Place podcast. If you like what you heard, consider subscribing in your favorite podcast app and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks, everybody. Bye.